to call Trump a sexist, racist megalomaniac yeah. is really Section D news. This is not <laughs> headline. This is not headline material. From Topic and Earwolf, this is Politically Reactive. I'm W. Kamau Bell. And I'm the future father of your children, Hari Kundabolu. We're two comedians trying to make sense of politics in America. In this episode, we talk to environmental justice leader Mustafa Santiago Ali, who will break down environmental risks communities face long after Hurricane Harvey. And we'll also talk to him about his name and getting to the airport easily. And then we talk to Dr. Kiyanga Yamada-Taylor. She's assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. She became the target of right-wing attacks after her commencement speech at Hampshire College. The president of the United States, the most powerful politician in the world, is a racist, sexist megalomaniac. Fox News ran four stories about Dr. Taylor's shocking speech. In a matter of four days, she received more than 50 vicious messages, including death threats. Fox News running a bullshit story about somebody? I can't even imagine that. None of that seems to matter to Kamau Bell. He's happy to stand up on stage and call his opponents Nazis. That's not a label you use on people you want to debate. Hmm, that's interesting. Hmm. It's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hey, Kamau. What's up, sir? Where are you right now? I am in the People's Republic of Berkeley, California. It's never oh, felt so safe. People's Republicly in my existence. <laughs> That's right. I'm in the People's Republic of Burlington, Vermont, uh, which is also very similar. And uh, <laughs> I was doing a show, and a young person, that's what I call anyone that is not my age, came up to me and handed me an embroidered patch that said, Fuck Bill Maher. Wow. It is one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. <laughs> I mean, earlier this year, I, I was doing a show and I received a uh, another like an embroidered, another embroidered thing that had the picture of the White House that said, this is not normal because I tweet that every yep, day. Yep, yep, yep. You sure do. But this was a politically reactive gift and it was unbelievable. If you are the person who handed me this gift... Please tell me what your name is so I can credit you because it's lovely. And apparently people want to buy them, which uh, is amazing <laughs> and kind of the best. And I wonder if there's a way for us to work together because that's kind of the best thing. Would a portion of the proceeds have to go to Bill Maher? Oh, crap. Really? What if you spelled <laughs> it differently, slightly, like M-A-H-A-R? Is it doing the work then? People know. Like, <laughs> we're not talking about some random guy named Bill Maher, you know? <laughs> That also looks like the person who made it didn't know how to spell. That's also the other thing. Right. <laughs> well, while we're talking about good things in the world, like that embroidered patch you got, uh, we want to talk about some guests who have some good things going on. Apparently, after we talked about uh, Dick Gregory on the show with Roy Wood Jr., he went and then wrote a piece for the New York Times about Dick Gregory. So, you know. Yeah, it's very cool. Also, our friend Asif Manvi. Uh, Asif got married to Shafali Puri this, uh, this past week or maybe the week before. I'm not sure because I was not invited to the wedding. <laughs> oh, it was beautiful. It was so lovely. Oh, oh don't even pretend you so, went. Don't um, even. Uh, uh, Where was it? Where was it? You know what? You know what? I've said too much already. They, they told me not to mention that I was there because you'd, you'd be like this. It was at the famous Fox Theater in Atlanta, and I'm discovering this because they are in Brides Magazine or Brides.com. Wow. Which I never thought Asif Manvi would be in Brides.com, which is 
very. That says something about your appeal that you end up on brides.com. That's a. Yeah. <laughs> you're going mainstream. They look great. They had a multicultural wedding because he's Muslim and she's Hindu and they had like multiple faiths. It's beautiful. Um, so, congratulations, <laughs> Asif. I am now the most eligible South Asian in the broad field of comedy huh. available. No. What? Did, yeah. Did, who else? Who did, else? Did Aziz get married? Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, Kamal. Hey, somebody make a patch that says fuck you. No, Kamal. don't do that. They will do it. Fuck no, you, Kamal. no. It's just, I'm just facts. I'm just dating, just asking questions. Oh, we could do a Hassan Minaj update. Uh, big update for Hassan. Uh, he's still handsome. <laughs> still working out for him. Still working out. He's still a very handsome married man. Even married and totally committed to his wife. Somehow he's still ahead of you on the eligible bachelor list. I hate this. I hate this so much. I hate this. <laughs> Quick side point. Like, I get what you're saying about Aziz. If you're into, if you're the kind of person that's into financial security for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. But if you like the thrill of, like, scraping by forever, hey, I'm right here, baby. <laughs> Now we know why your Bumble profile didn't do well, because if it said, if you like the feel of, the feeling of scraping by, I'm your man. They're like, hmm. <laughs> uh, here's a cute story. So as I talked about in our last episode, uh, I went to the rally in, in downtown Berkeley. And part of that is we went, me and my family went to a a non-violence training, and we took the kids to a training about how to be non-violent when you're feeling threatened, because, I, again, I marched with Pastor Michael McBride, who led a non-violent delegation and said that we're here to be non-violent. If you feel violent, then please leave our delegation. If you feel like you can't be there, please leave our delegation. And we did. Nobody, we did not practice any violence. But one of the things we had to do was we had to, like, come, we had to, they taught the kids and all of us chants, and... At the time, my two kids were there, and they were a little bit, I could tell they were a little bit overwhelmed, my two daughters, by just all the, like, talking and all the adults, and it felt sort of, not serious, but it felt like something important was happening. And so my kids sort of got that face of, like, what, what is happening here? And so we talked about it later, and we talked about it, and as happens with my daughter Sammy, she gets, when stuff makes her nervous, she tries to sort of figure it out a little bit and try to own it so she feels better. And so... Uh, last couple nights in the bath, Sammy and her sister, because because Juno does whatever Sammy does, have just in the middle of bath for no prompting at all, just started to go, hey hey, ho ho, white supremacy's got to go, hey hey, ho ho, <laughs> white supremacy's got to go, hey hey, <laughs> just like out of nowhere, they're screaming it oh at like you know God. seven o'clock at night, it out is at the top, height of their lungs, <laughs> just because she's like. She just had to sort of like, when she first heard it, it made her a little bit scared. But now she's like, I got it now. I got it now. Two nights in a row. Oh my daughters. my And God. even though it's loud, I don't tell them to be quiet. I'm like, nah, this is where the neighbors are going to have to hear it. <laughs> They're not going to be surprised to come from the bell house. That is amazing. Yeah, it's a moment where you're like, we're good parents. <laughs> that, that makes me so happy. And I want her to bring that to school. And I want yeah. that to be repeated constantly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just funny when you hear like a... a like a, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Juno, is like almost just not even three yet. And she's like, hey, hey, white the bamity got to go. <laughs> she still words a lot. It's a big word. <laughs> I don't think I said white supremacy. I, I, I don't. I don't disagree. White dependency has to go too. <laughs> it does all let's, of it. Let's <laughs> knock them both out. That's let's all get of them it. Both out at once. <laughs> Welcome out. Who do we have on today's show? So this episode, we have a couple interviews. Uh, the first of which is with Mustafa Santiago Ali. 
who used to work in several administrations in environmental justice, and he's going to talk to us a lot about uh, Hurricane Harvey. And we also have uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who's an, an incredible professor, has written a wonderful book. We're going to talk to her just about the intersections of capitalism and racism. And I think, you know, this episode's really interesting because a lot of this is about capitalism and also specifically disaster capitalism or shock capitalism. You know, when you think about, for example, what's happening in Harvey right now, is it going to be like a Katrina situation? Are we going to have lots of gentrification? Who's going to take advantage of this? So for for you listeners, I would suggest listening to the Naomi Klein episode that we did where she talks about shock capitalism and her new book, No Is Not Enough. But she also goes over the shock doctrine and you know a few other things to kind of – I think that helps set up this episode because um, even though Naomi is not in the episode specifically, I think her, her essence is kind of there. And I think it would be useful if you listen to it right before or right after. <laughs> so wait, you're like giving people homework in the podcast they're currently listening to. Yes, man. We're trying to get the ratings up. <laughs> <laughs> also, I suggest you listen to the whole first season. Yeah, times. yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And also I would I would also try to write about – our podcast as much as you can. Yeah. Let's say if you owned, uh, you know, a, a, a very popular, uh, you know, uh, the New York Times. If you own the New York Times, <laughs> if you own the very popular please. New York Times. Write about our podcast. Also, Dr. Kianga Taylor is friends with Naomi Klein, so there's another connection there. Both these interviews are really exciting. I'm I'm pretty excited about this interview, though I'm miserable about the fact that uh, you know everything's falling apart. Yeah, well, of course. We also asked all of you to call in and tell us what you're doing to stay politically engaged in these times. So we're going to be playing bits and pieces of that throughout our episode. Hello, my name is Meredith Plunkett, and I'm from Keller, Texas. I just recently moved to the DFW area, and the first thing I did to stay engaged was I plugged in my new senators, Ted Cruz and John Corrin's numbers, into my phone so that they were readily available so that I can call them on the daily to fight for things I believe in and let them know that, yes, I am now a new voting member of Texas. One of the other things I did when I moved was get my uh, voter registration right away so no one could try to fuck with me on uh, voting day um, or election day. Another thing I'm trying to do is is get involved locally, is look into becoming a precinct captain. Become a precinct captain, get to know my neighbors, and fight for what I believe in. Our first guest is Mustafa Santiago Ali, who is the Senior Vice President of Climate, Environmental Justice, and Community Revitalization at Hip Hop Caucus. His business card says, here, continued on side two. And hopefully it's on recycled paper. Previously, he worked at the Environmental Protection Agency for 24 years. And in fact, he helped found the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice in 1992 under President George H.W. Bush, a completely different Bush than the one who's more famous. Earlier this year, Mustafa sent his resignation letter to the EPA's new administrator, Scott Pruitt, encouraging him to continue the environmental justice program's work. Wow. I wonder how quickly he put that into the shredder. (laughs) Mustafa joins us today to talk about how low-income communities and communities of color face the greatest risks from environmental disasters. Let's get him in here. This interview was recorded on September 1st, 2017. 
September 1st also marks the birth of one Gloria Estefan. The rhythm's going to get you. The rhythm's going to get you. The ri oh, the rhythm got me. Help, the rhythm has got me. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So my first question is sort of a little bit more big picture. We'll get into some of the tiny issues. But my question is, with a name like Mustafa Santiago Ali, when Trump was elected, did you know your days in that administration were numbered? <laughs> I knew that there definitely was uh, going to be a crosshair on me, without a doubt. It almost <laughs> made me feel like when I go to the airport and, uh, you know, there's uh, someone on the other side of the counter and they're smiling and they look down and they see Mustafa and then they look back up and they're like, uh-oh, <laughs> and you just see the change. So I knew it was going to be a special time. But, you know, the, the work that time. I had done was really important. So if there was any possibility, you know, I was going to do what I could uh, to hang in there. Yeah. I mean, this is a very basic question, but I think a lot of people don't know what these terms mean. What is environmental racism and what is environmental justice? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So, you know, it's actually three different terms that have been out there since the beginning. And I actually started the environmental justice movement as a student. And the three terms that were there were environmental equity, environmental justice, and environmental racism. And when folks talk about environmental racism, they're talking about the intentional uh, sort of racial aspect uh, of the impacts that are happening inside of communities, where they're placing certain things, or whether it's a landfill, uh, or it's an incinerator, or a coal-fired power plant. There being that intentionality in that of, you know, trying to impact uh, communities of color uh, and indigenous populations. Environmental justice um, is a term sort of that uh, everything kind of evolved into because uh, also when folks were talking about environmental equity at one of the first meetings back in 1992, and there was an elderly African-American lady who was there, and she stood up when folks were talking about the three different definitions. And she said, well, environmental equity is definitely not going to work because what we're asking for is not to be moving pollution around. We are actually looking for justice and we're looking for the elimination uh, of these impacts for any low-income white community or wealthy white community or an indigenous community, African-American community, Latino community, so forth and so on. So then there was a big conversation that happened in that space and folks decided on justice, uh, environmental justice being the term moving forward. Um, and that's where we are today. How do you see environmental racism playing out through uh, Hurricane Harvey currently? You, you see a number of different dynamics that are going to happen in this space. The, the first one, of course, is everybody's always focused on saving lives. And it's great to see so many folks have come together, both those who are in official capacity, those people who are volunteering, you know, to pull together and help save people's lives and help get them to safety. The real interesting dynamic is after this period is over and you begin to see a movement of people. Folks maybe had moved on, just like in Katrina, folks went over to Houston and to Baton Rouge and a number of places, and then they had difficulty getting back home, and they had difficulty in finding housing. So one of the things you're going to see is that there'll be a dynamic that goes on here very shortly in trying to get people housed um, and you know, getting people who have owned homes get their homes back up. So the question will be, will there be disproportionate impacts to communities of color and trying to locate uh, places to live, will there be disproportionate impact uh, when the dollars, the federal dollars start to flow? Will there be biases uh, that will also take place 
when folks are looking for opportunities, the contracting and subcontracting opportunities as the cleanup goes on. Then you're also going to see some other dynamics. You're going to see dynamics in the environmental context of Superfund sites. There are a number of those that were flooded and pollution and sediment begins to move. And we all know that this current administration has been slashing budgets in relationship to Superfund work. So now there'll be priorities that have to be set and people will be making decisions about which communities will get cleaned up, how fast it will happen at what level. And therein lies the rub, if you will. Uh, Will there be those disproportionate impacts in communities of color? And if so, will environmental racism be a part of that overall construct of the way people are analyzing the situation? I'm hoping that folks have learned the lessons from Katrina and Sandy and even the BP oil spill of how we have to be laser focused on our most vulnerable communities and helping to make sure that the right things are in place to make sure that justice is a part of the process so that these impacts that happen even without storms, that, you know, we begin to address those. As the vice president the other day was saying, you know, now we're going to all come together, make sure that all of our citizens are protected. I hope that that actually does play out, because if it doesn't, then we will be looking at environmental injustice situations. You mentioned Katrina, and Katrina has been on my mind a lot as well, just thinking about since that was such a huge environmental disaster, and and also just thinking about so many of the residents of New Orleans who were relocated to Houston after that. The idea they might be experiencing this again is just very painful to think about. But from what you've seen so far, how has the FEMA response been? As of right now, do you see any improvement? Do you see the patterns repeating? Um, As it relates to the initial recovery, I think that folks have been doing a pretty good job from where I am. I haven't been down on the ground for the first time in 20 years. So from the folks that I've talked to, in the sense of people going out, going to people's homes, trying to make sure that someone's stuck on a roof or those types of things, it seems like that part has been pretty good. Katrina was a little different, where we had folks trying to cross bridges and and people stopping them, those types of things. We haven't seen that type of a situation so far in relationship to what's been going on in Houston and Port Arthur and Beaumont. But the real rub, again, will be as dollars start to flow, uh, as decisions are being made and priorities being set of how much folks are going to actually engage with vulnerable communities, um, how their voice will play out in the process. If there are sort of these gaps that exist, will they be filled? Um, Will communities' voice also help in the disaster action plan uh, that will be designed or already is moving forward? And and, and as it continues to evolve, you know, how their voices will, will play out in that situation. So those are some of the things that folks have to, you know, pay attention to. And we're just going to have to make sure that there's real equity a part of this process or folks who have been in these vulnerable situations will just be doubly facing these challenges that, that will be in front of them. I may be wrong about this, but you don't feel like a Republican to me. I don't know. Like, I don't, you don't necessarily have to reveal your political affiliation if you don't want to. I think right now we, we see the Republican Party, a lot of us, uh, as especially as led by Trump, is this real sort of obstructionist, not inclusive, not sort of defining America as you know supportive for all people. But you, I think it's important to say, you founded the Environmental Justice Agency under George H.W. Bush. Yeah, I actually helped found the Office of Environmental Justice, uh, and I should share with your listeners, sometimes there's some 
not full narratives. So that office and all the environmental justice work that's been going on at the agency actually came out of a set of recommendations that stakeholders uh, from these communities um, designed um, and actually gave the blueprint. So I always want to give credit back to the communities uh, and those leaders who actually, you know, were the ones, you know, the impetus, if you will, for moving forward. As it relates to this administration, I'm very, very clear with folks uh, that if you take a look at their proposals and actions that they have been doing moving forward, they are not very reflective in a positive way in relationship to vulnerable communities uh, or to low-income communities or to indigenous communities. I have not yet seen one proposal that was beneficial to those communities, and I've been doing this work on the ground and at the highest levels in Washington for a long time. So if you take a look at the cuts that they proposed at HUD, those will have direct impacts if not addressed in relationship to the new housing stock that will be developed in Houston. We have to be very focused also to make sure that gentrification doesn't happen in that space and that folks you know, are not being displaced after new things begin to come into their community. We also have to be very focused on the huge cuts that they've been talking about for the Environmental Protection Agency, whether it's around Superfund or Brownfields, or even, you know, as it relates to surface water issues. So the interesting thing is that the storm moved across Texas in both the urban and rural areas. So now folks who have wells, because everybody is not connected to city water systems, now there's going to be the challenges that exist in them getting it tested, making sure that it's okay. And the interesting dynamic is they've been talking about slashing budgets um, at EPA, whether it's around science, whether it's around water quality, or whether it's around air-related issues. And you all saw just a few days ago the chemical plant and the explosion. So if you have studied or know some of the communities that there are Houston, the Manchester community, where Tejas is, is a primarily Latino community. If you went to their community before the storm and you rolled down your window in your car, the air literally feels like you are breathing gasoline fumes. But yet we have an administration who continually wants to stop enforcement-related actions, wants to not support addressing air pollution. And these communities, whether in the Manchester community in Houston, Texas, or in Port Arthur, which is still underwater, they've been facing these very difficult situations, having pipelines that literally ended their communities, uh, along with the petrochemical and a number of other industries that are there that have been impacting these communities for decades now. So when you have these hurricanes come, it highlights these injustices because now it's putting a spotlight on it of what folks have been dealing with. I think people have been struggling to figure out who to donate to, and you often read articles later like, don't donate to the Red Cross, they've done this, or don't donate to that. And where should we donate to? I mean, what do you suggest? Well, you know, a number of uh, stakeholders have gotten together, and they actually have a hashtag right now. It's called a Just Harvey Recovery. Or they also put together sort of a list of where you can donate and some of the challenges that are actually going on. It's an organization that's called Another Gulf is Possible. And what they're trying to do is to make sure that folks are understanding these immediate impacts, but also that folks are very focused on creating sort of a just recovery, if you will. So folks can go to Another Gulf is Possible, uh, or they can follow hashtag Just Harvey Recovery, um, and it will lead you to a number of resources that the stakeholders, the folks who are there on the ground, their organizations and others who have been doing this work, who have been focused in these communities, who have been facing environmental injustices 
for a number of years. They are joining together to be able to make real change happen. Uh, our final question, uh, and I only ask this because you mentioned HUD, while you were still in the uh, in the administration, did you ever run into Ben Carson at like the administration cafeteria? <laughs> <laughs> do you ever, you know, when you guys have like the black people who work in the Trump administration meeting, do you ever see him? Uh, no, I never ran into the brother. I, I, I would have been interesting because I would have had uh, you know, a couple <laughs> of real probing questions. Uh, <laughs> Because he has the opportunity, if, if you've studied some of the place-based work that needs to happen, in many instances, HUD has been able to play a role in some of the transformations. And I hope that he really understands the opportunity that he has to really help our communities, as I often say, move from surviving to thriving and help people to be able to move forward in building wealth and living in safe and healthy communities. And he should also be helping to guide these other folks in, in the administration with understanding what's really going on on the ground, in communities, in barrios, on indigenous lands, and how we can make real change. So I think he has a responsibility to, to make sure that he's lifting his voice, along with others. I don't want to take and put just the responsibility on him. All of these secretaries of these departments and administrators of agencies have a distinct responsibility to protecting the lives that are inside of our country, especially our most vulnerable communities. As I often say, that if we can address the issues that are happening in our most vulnerable communities, that's how we strengthen our country. That's how we make real change, because if we can make change there, then it is going to, to help the country as a whole. Uh, that's the long way of saying I would have loved to have that conversation with that brother. <laughs> we, we hope you have it in the future sometime. Thank you for the one thing I really think I really appreciate is that I can hear two things that I always hear from people like you who are so deep in this work. There's the how much work we have to do and how much hope we have to keep in front of us. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. We can live up to the ideals that our country is, is founded on and is supposed to be about. But to enable to do that, we've got to be focused on those folks uh, who need our help the most, but also who have innovation inside their communities, have their own sets of ideas. And as we often say in the environmental justice movement, that communities speak for themselves. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right. Y'all have a blessed one. I look forward to catching up with y'all again. Hello, my name is Catherine. I'm calling from the city of Las Cruces, New Mexico. I live about an hour north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And since November, I've been working with an organization called NM Café, Comunidades en Acción y Fe, uh, which is an organization that primarily works to provide sanctuary to undocumented immigrants and to disrupt the deportation processes of ICE and Border Patrol. We actually just had a town hall uh, meeting at the current site of construction in Santa Teresa, New Mexico, of the border wall. And them cafe, they're doing good work. And down here on the border, we're staying woke. We'll be right back after we take care of some business. And some business. All right, back to the show. Hey, uh, my name is Stephanie, and my friend Allison and I created a newsletter called Small Victories. We've been sending it out now for 35 weeks since January, and basically it tracks all of the kind of people-powered victories against the Trump administration's agenda. So we're trying to celebrate all of the concrete wins, the cultural changes, and the mobilizations 
from like a policy change on a local level or a state level to um, a cultural change where people are supporting something like Medicare for All, which like five years ago seemed politically impossible. It's a way to, to combat that, you know, just paralyzing anxiety that everything is predetermined and dreadful uh, and you have no sort of course of action. So we hope that it sustains people's activism. We hope it's movement building. We're trying to share information about the groups that are taking these actions. Um, and we're trying to just illuminate possibilities about what the future could be. And now we're talking to Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. She's a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University and the author of the book From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. The Nation magazine said Kianga's book is essential reading for 2017. Naomi Klein said Kianga is one of the sharpest intellectuals of our time, connecting inequality and race. All right, well, let's get Dr. Taylor in here. This interview was recorded on August 25th, 2017 which is Cal Mitchell's birthday. Cal from Canaan and Cal. Poor Cal. Hello, Dr. Taylor. Hi, can, you guys can call me Kianga, please. <laughs> <laughs> school, school starts in about three weeks and I will be Dr. Taylor out. <laughs> this is a rare occasion to use your first name. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Very glad to be here. No, we really appreciate it. Are things as bad as we think they are, or are they worse than we think they are, or are they better than we think they are? Oh, no, it's bad. <laughs> it's it's very bad, and I think that we need to, to say that it's bad. I think we're just at the very beginning of understanding the impact of the, the Trump administration in ways that I think can make it seem that, you know, maybe it's not as bad as— we think that it is because most of the, the mass media, which is how most of our relationship to this administration, it's filtered through that. But when the media is so fixated on, you know, whether Trump is crazy and aspects of his personality and his tweets, we can miss the horrific things that are going on in this country right now, whether it's the resurgence of private prisons, whether it's fully understanding uh, what the commitment to endless war in Afghanistan actually means, whether it's clearly comprehending what Jeff Sessions is up to in the Department of Justice and his sort of one-man effort to try to bring back the thoroughly discredited war on drugs. I mean, there are all kinds of insidious things that are happening within the Trump administration that we haven't even begun to really grapple with because the media is is fixated on Russia and on the latest tweet and on all of the distracting nonsense that he constantly churns up on a daily basis that these other aspects, what Steve Bannon in his sinister way put the deconstruction of the administrative state, like what that actually means mm. in the lives of ordinary people on a daily basis. We're, we're at the tip of the iceberg with that. They are doing things that will have a profound impact in people's lives for the years to come. You, you were very critical of uh, number 45 during uh, your commencement speech at Hampshire College, and you talked about him being racist and a megalomaniac and sexist and, you know, his treatment of immigrants and the raids on undocumented people and climate signs. From the terror-inducing raids in the communities of undocumented immigrants 
to his disparaging of refugees in search of freedom and respite. He has empowered an attorney general who embraces and promulgates policies that have already been proven to have a devastating impact on black families and communities. He thinks that climate science is fake and his eagerness to take the country into war can only be interpreted as a callous disregard for its steep price in both money and human life. This list could continue but suffice to say that Donald Trump has fulfilled the campaign promises of a campaign organized and built upon racism, corporatism, and militarism. And it became controversial because Fox News made it controversial. Mm-hmm. And uh, they featured four stories about this mm-hmm. on Memorial Day weekend. You received more than 50 vicious messages and, and death threats, and you had to stop doing public events. Correct. Uh, I mean, first of all, it shocked me just because, first, you were doing it at Hampshire College. So, like, you saying all those things in your speech is basically like the Pledge of Allegiance there. <laughs> Like, that's not a Hampshire. You can make your own uh, curriculums. Right. I don't know if grades, I think grades might be optional. Like, at that, you could do, like, this is not shocking there right. at all. But Hampshire, Hampshire was already in their crosshairs because when uh, Trump was elected, uh, the Hampshire student body, I think they voted or somehow came to a decision to lower the American flag to half mast. And so they were already in the the crosshairs of the the right-wing media so that when I gave my commencement speech, it just put it over the top for these people. But really, you know, thinking back to May and what has occurred in the last couple of weeks, as the the popular uh, colloquial expression is, where is the lie? Right, 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 right. Like, seriously. (laughs) I mean, the guy is one breath from Sieg Heiling at his press conference at Trump Towers, you know, a couple of Tuesdays ago, to call Trump a sexist, racist megalomaniac is really Section D news. This is not headline headline material. From now on, before I say any kind of phrase, I'm going to begin by by saying, like the popular colloquial expression goes... You are woke. <laughs> From now on, I must say those three words before. I mean, how how are you doing since since then? Like, you know, have you gone back to public speaking as as if things kind of returned? Yeah, to- we were um, we were talking briefly beforehand about the Socialism 2017 conference in Chicago, and so my first public talk after the death threats and the the Fox News. Um, nonsense were at that conference. And so I gave a talk on fighting racism in the Trump era in front of, I don't know, 1,200 people. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm disturbed about the state of our world and the state of what is happening in this country, but I've regrouped. What happened with me was a sort of pit stop on what has happened to a number of outspoken, radical left-wing faculty in this country. And so I think the Fox mob, the right wing mob has, you know, moved on for now, although they're always uh, looking for the next person to go after. But I had an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago on my encounter with the Fox mob after the speech at Hampshire. You know, I think I got two angry letters, but nothing at all on the scale of what happened in May. I like how um, after 
you dealt with all that. Your first uh, public appearance after that was at the Socialism Conference. It's good to start with a home <laughs> game. You got you to start, go with the base first. It was, a- I mean, it was also a kind of statement for me that I'm not going to be intimidated mm. because it is the case that the story around Hampshire was first picked up or created. They made it the campus reform that right-wing Koch brother-backed news site made it into a news issue that Fox then picked up. And so Campus Reform contacted me perhaps a month before uh, the Socialism Conference uh, via email saying something to the effect of, we see that you're going to be speaking at the Socialism Conference. We'd like to interview you. And so I took that as a threat, given what News coverage from that website meant in May, I took that as a threat that we are watching you, um, we are watching where you speak, we are watching what you say, and that you should take heed of that. And so I didn't respond to their request for an interview, but I was certainly um, happy to go ahead with my talk at a conference titled Socialism with remarks that were about uh, how we take on racism during the presidency of Donald Trump. I read your New York Times piece and I thought it was great because I feel like, you know, a lot of this stuff, as you wrote in the New York Times piece, it sort of boiled down to free speech. Mm-hmm. And what you wrote about a lot, which I've seen a little bit too, is the idea that like progressives don't always stand up for other progressives around free speech issues. Well, I think there's a lot of hypersensitivity that, you know, we have to make sure that the rights of conservatives on campus are not encroached upon um, because that's what they think that we do, all of which I think is is absurd nonsense. I mean, for anyone who spends any amount of time on a college campus will know that, you know, I'm sorry, college campuses are not hotbeds of radicalism and leftism. In fact, often students in particular who identify themselves as radical or left-wing are under constant pressure, typically from administrative types, to rein in their activism, to rein in their uh, speech. We have things on campuses like free speech zones where you're only allowed to engage in activist or political speech in certain areas of campuses. It's often the case where administrative bodies get to judge the nature and content of political flyers that people want to put up on campus. They get to judge and determine whether or not political groups and clubs get to exist on campus. And these types of rules that are meant to regulate political activity on campuses are overwhelmingly directed at left-wing and radical uh, student organizing efforts. There is an untold number of examples of this. Perhaps the most egregious is the decision at Fordham University to just outright ban Students for Justice in Palestine from being able to even form a student group, determining that the nature of the group itself was divisive. And so I think that, you know, we have to get away from this idea that somehow the right is under attack on campuses and that the left doesn't need any particular form of defense. And I think one of the things that came up with that article, I got several responses, mostly on Twitter, saying, oh, that's unfortunate what happened to you, but that doesn't have anything to do with free speech because you weren't deplatformed. And I reject that. 
sending me letters saying that I will be lynched, that I will be shot, that I will be attacked, or subjecting me to harassing emails is suppressing my right to speak unless I want to endure these things. I mean, that's why I canceled the West Coast wing of my book tour uh, was in direct response to these threats. And so that was an effort to suppress my ability to express myself. And this is something that has happened to not just me, Saida Grundy at Boston University, Zandria Robinson at Rhodes University in, in Memphis. Of course, we know about Stephen Salida, George Chicarielo Mayer. Um, he's, and, he's in Philly, too. Isn't yeah, he? he's at Drexel. George That's is right. a good friend of mine. And so in all of these cases, you know, no, the state has not intervened or administrators have not intervened to say that you cannot uh, speak. But we have to look at the effect and the interplay between Fox, its fringe viewership, its relationship to the Republican Party and how all of these work together to try to suppress and or limit the ability for radicals to speak out. And in Chicharriello Mayer's case, his administration actually did get involved and put pressure on him to curb his activity on social media. And so I think that universities are intensely political spaces, increasingly so as state governments and the federal government begin to rescind or limit the amount of financial contributions, which has forced these institutions into fundraising, which then makes them incredibly sensitive to what their faculty are saying, how their students behave. And in an effort to curry favor with potential funders and donors, there's an attempt to try to put pressure on faculty and students to really limit political speech that may be deemed unsavory to potential sources of financing. Also, it's so fascinating because of this discussion, whenever we talk about the lack of of expression on campuses, since you know mm-hmm. you talk about this obviously, uh, it's always the right, but it's interesting because it's actually almost a shared topic, you know, the mm-hmm. idea of you're saying, like, why are we creating these free speech zones? What that's doing is, like, preventing people from expressing things broadly, from having deeper conversations. Mm-hmm. And what the right would argue is this is an example of political correctness, talking point, talking point, talking point. Mm-hmm. But it's actually kind of a, a shared view, like we are curbing conversation. For administrative types, I think they do want to curb discussion and conversation. I think that they go after the left because they feel like they can get away with it. They're concerned about going after the right because they fear they'll end up on Fox News and they will be inundated with phone calls and bad publicity. And now in this context, you might get deluged with a bunch of nasty tweets from the president of the United States. But in both cases, I think you have administrators who are really violating the premise of what the university is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. It is supposed to be a place of critical thought and engagement. The entire reason that academic freedom exists is because academics deal and dwell in the world of ideas. And when you deal with ideas, then you are 
almost certain to be dealing with provocative and controversial thoughts and speech and ideas. And so that's why academic freedom exists, so that you are allowed to do so without threat of punishment from your employer. And I think that as we see the transformation of the university, where you have growing layers of bureaucracy and administrators and provosts, whatever the hell a provost is, <laughs> collecting bigger and bigger salaries and constantly on the hunt for donations and donors and funders, they often see the, the students as customers and faculty members as service providers. And right. this is the wrong way to be looking at uh, uh, the university because in and of itself that uh, begins to uh, create all sorts of uh, pressures on everyone to stop speaking, to stop thinking, and to stop get engaging critically. I remember when I was a student at Bowdoin College, and we had mm. you know, a few racial incidents my mm-hmm. senior year, and there were people like putting up really critical signs and you know about race and mm-hmm. about like the, the treatment of people of color after a particular incident that we had at that time. And the administration pulled all those posters down decided to have a, a, a public forum. That's that's how you have a discussion, in a public forum with administration there. and Breathing with down your neck. Exactly. Yes. And it's like I see it time and time again where then uh, the, the power of the student is immediately removed and put into admi- uh, the, the power of administrators. Well, that I mean, that's why uh, universities have been, and I think particularly going into this school year, are going to be intense sites of of protest and really challenging challenging that some of that is because the issue of free speech has become a lightning rod but i think more importantly if people are really engaged in trying to figure out what do we do and in order to figure out what do we do we have to have political spaces on campus and beyond the campus, but really in this context, on campus, to talk about what is actually happening in this country. And campuses, I think, are such a focal point precisely because it is a time when young people are trying to figure out who they are, what they think, and what they want to do with their lives. I mean, this is part of the reason why the right wants to be on campus as well. Sure, they love to have a big fight about whether or not they can be on campus, and they they love when the big protest breaks out and all that, but they actually do want to speak. I mean, Richard Spencer is trying to tour college campuses, not just so he can have a confrontation over whether he can speak, but he wants to speak. They are on a recruitment tour on campuses. So this is these are serious issues. Uh, I, I was about to call you doctor because I feel like I'm in class, but I won't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to stop myself. <laughs> Kianga. Uh, Kianga. Like, it's a hard Kianga. A. Kianga. See, that's why I should have said doctor. <laughs> See, uh because <laughs> I, I live in Berkeley, so a lot of this oh, stuff you're talking about with yeah. Spencer. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, exactly. And so a lot of things you say, like about Milo and Richard Spencer, I've also, uh, as some people know, I've talked to Richard Spencer. Mm, I question sometimes whether they do want to speak. Like, I feel like sometimes the recruitment is in the confrontation. I think the recruitment is in the confrontation. I also think that they want to speak. I think that they recognize that they're, for whatever reasons, and we can talk about the reasons, uh, of of the the white racial resentment, especially amongst the middle class and young white men, and where do they fit in the world, and that they have something uh, uh, to say about that, 
And, you know, and I think that when Spencer has gotten the opportunity to speak, that he's, you know, he's used that opportunity to, to do so. I, you know, I do think that the, the confrontation for someone like Milo in particular, or Ann Coulter, that perhaps is, is more uh, of the game. But I think that for some of these people, they have worked out a set of ideas about how they say that the world works, and they are looking at this as an opportunity uh, for their ranks to grow. I think they have an entire strategy around this that, you know, is fractured. Different groups have different objectives. They are by no means a, a cohesive, uh, cogent movement. Um, but I think that uh, among the different groups, that they are also trying to figure out how to take advantage of this political moment and that we should not I- underestimate that. It's funny because there was a point at which earlier this year I was doing my own college tour. And a lot of the times I would either go places where either Milo was going to. I was actually mm. at Cal. I was at San Luis Obispo. They booked me to counter program Milo. Wow. Like he showed up like the, the Republican club booked him and he spoke. They let him speak. Mm-hmm. But it was also looked like a military invasion. They had it locked down. <laughs> and then like. In a, like in the same building, I think, because it was a huge campus, one where there's a huge like like performance center. I was in the same building as him, wow. doing my own thing, and then I was like at Auburn University, yes. right? Either before right. Spencer got there, right. and I, and I was just very like I'm on stage. I'm I'm saying white people, you need to own your shit. You need to be more. You need to have some pride in yourself so you can confront the evil parts of you. You need to, I'm just saying not all white pride. Things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I actually do believe in white pride. That's a whole other discussion. Hardy disagrees with me. Uh, <laughs> We can, we can, me Lord have mercy. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, I got my kids are half white. I'm doing the best I can. But, uh, mine, mine too. Okay, yeah. So, well, we all oh, didn't have that conversation. Mm-hmm. But, so, but Hashtag I want to say miscegenation. <laughs> I can't even imagine how many misspellings you're going to have yes. in that hashtag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People couldn't even get a clip the other day. I, I misspelled it. <laughs> <laughs> how many, how many C's in a clip? Oh, Lord, my education. So I guess I say that to say I was going around saying things that people felt provoked by and people felt like was like some people would like sometimes I'd have people walk out. But nobody was afraid that that violence was going to break out. Right, right. And I feel like the thing with I mean, I Spencer, I've talked to him. I think Mm -hmm. he does have a thing that he wants to get out there. But when I feel like you allow your movement and even your your the what the area that's directly around you. So when you travel in violent ways and you encourage that. Then I do understand why, like co- some colleges are like, you can come speak here, but we don't want violence. And we're and it's, especially if you're Milo, where it's like I'm also going to target undocumented students. I, sure. That's part of my thing. I do. I target undocumented students. That's part of this. I have this little closer I do where I target students. You know, like that to me feels so different. You know. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't. I think that Charlottesville took off the sheet. You know, for uh, what these folks are are about and so you know this whole fig leaf of free speech and and their you know coming to college campuses and all that just to engage in their right to be inflammatory racist and promote violence that a great deal of that has been exposed uh because of charlottesville i mean there was a very sort of moving piece in the new york times by 
one of the the students, they did several profiles of uh, students who were at Charlottesville. And one of them was from, I think he was a reporter for the student newspaper, maybe an editor, uh, who said that uh, he referred to himself as naive um, in his support of uh, the, the white racist coming to march on Charlottesville. And he said that he had changed his mind after their quote-unquote demonstration because he saw them uh, for the terrorists that they actually were. Uh, So I think that when administrators put shackles on student organizers and student protests, then they leave the campus open and vulnerable to the attacks of these white races who we have seen are vested in violence, who promote violence, and who engage in acts of violence. And so that's why this is not just an abstract philosophical discussion. The white racists uh, who engage in acts of violence, uh, the fascists, the neo-Nazis, are, are always of the minority. That's why they resort to violence, because they can't actually win people to their ideas without it. And so we have to be able, our side has to be able to organize freely so that we can actually bring the full weight of our side and its breadth and its massive numbers to bear in those circumstances. A friend of mine, Nancy Armstrong Temple, said this recently on my other show, Come on Right Now. She said, the reason why they can't have rallies all over the country on one day is because there's not enough of them. Absolutely. To me, that was one of the more telling things about Charlottesville that may have gotten uh, lost, which this is this was a national mobilization for them Mm. uh, that they had been planning, I believe, since May or early June. And there were 500 of them. And Mm. so I think that, you know, their their voice has been amplified because they have a supporter uh, in the White House um, or, you know, many supporters in the White House. So they, they seem much larger and influential than perhaps they are. But what we've also seen through some of the polls that have come out in the aftermath is that there is a lot of soft support for this kind of organized racist violence. And, and so the reason why it's important to politically move them off of the streets through protest and mass demonstration uh, demonstrations is because it helps to uh, sort of it marginalizes them and it also exposes them for what they are so that when you go to Boston uh, a week later, then you see what what this really is. It's a, a handful of nuts uh, who, you know, can't really muster up the, the, the support that they claim to have and are completely dwarfed by tens of thousands uh, of, of, of people. And, and in the aftermath of that, they have to cancel their appearances uh, across the country. You've said this before, the Democrats are hopeless, that the right uh, keeps exploiting white poverty, and it's important for the left to focus on issues of capitalism and economic rights. Can you, can you explain you know, what that means and what, what that entails? I think that there is an unbreakable bond between racism and uh, capitalism in the United States, and that, as Malcolm X said, you cannot have one uh, without the other. And that in some ways, as I see it, that racism is used to manage uh, the enormous economic inequality that exists in the United States, which is to say that it's not a coincidence that Donald Trump 
who has a massive a plan of massive wealth redistribution from the poor and working class of every everyone to the wealthy. It's not a coincidence that that's his economic plan, and it's coupled with the most vicious, violent, racist rhetoric that we have seen since Woodrow Wilson occupied the White House 100 years ago. Those two things go together. And in fact, you can't really have one without the other. And so what I think politically that means in terms of what are the responsibilities of the left that is trying to organize? I mean, there are other people who consider themselves to be progressive and who like to talk about things, who one might consider part of the chattering class. But in terms of people who are organizers and who are actually trying to build a movement, we have to have something to say about poor and working class uh, uh, white people. And not on this low common denominator of, you know, we're in the same economic boat, but how do we, how do we convince those people about the ways that racism is destroying their life. And so in my book, I write that racism is black people's burden without question. It's brown people, black people in this country's burden, but it's also white people's problem. Mm -hmm. That when our country spends $80 billion a year to maintain a disproportionately black and brown criminal justice system, it is our burden, but it is also their problem. And you can go down the list of uh, 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 social programs that secretly give greater aid to white people, but that racism is used to destroy. Last year was the 20th anniversary of Bill Clinton's crusade to destroy uh, welfare as a social entitlement. Um, And in 1996, when Bill Clinton signed the Personal Responsibility and Work Act uh, uh, that ended welfare, he signed it in the Rose Garden surrounding himself with black women. They used racism and the stereotypes of black women on welfare to destroy a social program that was needed, yes, by black women, but but that was being used disproportionately also uh, uh, or, or, or mostly um, by white women. And so we have to be able to, as a left, win ordinary white people to understanding the way that racism also has an impact on their lives. And we have to make an argument for solidarity that even though there are disparities in our society that show that it is advantageous, to say the least, to be white in this country, that the differences that exist between working-class white people and working-class black people, they exist, but they pale in comparison to the differences between the 400 billionaires that are in this country and the vast majority of us. And so this isn't about kumbaya or uh, let's ignore race so that we can organize on the basis of class. This is the best, the, the best way I can think about saying this is winter is coming <laughs> and we need allies. And, you know, the White Walkers are on their way. The Winter King is here. And so we got to, you know, we have to figure out how to build our army of regular people. Since uh, the the election, I mean, there's been we talked about this recently as well, but just there's been so many uh, folks on the left who said we have to stop identity politics. That's the problem. Identity politics, which always frustrates me because it, it just feels like a, a privileged thing to say. 
So how do we unite different movements while not diluting their individual fights? And is is discussing and tackling the effects of capitalism, is that the glue that connects our struggles together? Well, I, I just think the whole discussion about identity politics has been completely distorted. You can't end identity politics. It is the the way that people who are not white radicalize. Yeah. You know, black people radicalize those who who begin to question uh, what is happening in society do so because they're racially discriminated against. Women do so because they experience sexism. LGBT people do so because they experience gender uh, 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 expression, oppression, or homophobia, so on and so forth. And so people's identity is often what is uh, uh, leads them to politics um, in, the, in the first place. So that is one thing unto itself. The question then becomes about strategically, what do we do? And so the limits of identity politics as an actual political practice come in terms of, well, then how do we fight that? Are we saying that only black people who experience racial oppression can fight against racism? Because if you say that then, then we've limited ourselves in terms of who could and should be involved in this fight. And then you get down to basic math, which is that black people are 12% of the population, um, and the idea that 12% of the population will be able to fight for a different kind of, of world free of racism is unrealistic. So what is the basis upon which uh, we can organize solidarity uh, and, and create unified movements? Um, and, I, and not a fake unity on the basis that we all should be working together, but really seeing that we have interests that are uh, uh, connected to each other. And there's so many different examples that one can point to, uh, which even, you know, if we look at the last couple of weeks, anti- to be racist, to be openly racist in the United States is somewhat of a third rail. Um, and it's because the U.S. has invested so much in this mirage of being the land of equal opportunity uh, and the land of unfettered uh, social mobility. So you can be racist as hell. Uh, and all you have to do is look at the Republican Party to see that. But you can't be openly racist. You can't be burning crosses, wearing sheets, and all of that. And so Donald Trump was forced, really, for the first time in his presidency, to backtrack on his sort of open infatuation with organized racists because of that. Not because the Republican Party cares about black people, but because they can get away with so much by proclaiming to be doing it on the basis of colorblindness. But you also saw how quickly Trump pivoted to anti-immigrant racism as a way to try, try to reunify the country, because that is something that we are all supposed to be able to agree on. Trump had created last year a new economic deal for blacks, where number seven was deportation of what he referred to as illegal immigrants. And so to me, it, it shows the reason why solidarity is so important, because if you go in for the anti-immigrant racism on the basis that he rejects anti-black racism, then you're not seeing how one paves the path for the other. That is to say that at the end of the 1990s, there was a huge movement afoot to end racial profiling uh, because several African-Americans had been stopped on Interstate 95, uh, and it was clear that this was a key component uh, of, the, of the war 
more of the war on drugs. Um, and as soon as September 11th happened, the, there was a pivot to using racial profiling to finding uh, Muslim terrorists. And black people supported that overwhelmingly in the months and the weeks after 9-11. And the attacks on, on, on black people is what helped to develop that practice. And then when that was no longer possible, they were able to shift. So it means that we have to be in opposition to all racism because it affects all of us. And so that is really the basis upon which we can argue for a unified movement is seeing the way that oppression, even for ordinary white people, people, white people who are so miserable in this society that they are literally drinking and drugging themselves to death uh, through alcohol abuse and op opioid abuse, that what is the connection to that? What is the, 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 the basis upon which we can unite with people to argue that we're not just talking about a policy reform here or there. We're talking about what is wrong with a society that forces people into that position, that puts black people in prison, that creates borders, that separates families, all those sorts of things. So it's a, it's a long argument, I think, but it's an argument that has to be flushed out. Kanga, thank you so much for joining us. It, it's Honestly, it's been fantastic to have you here. This has been Thanks a great conversation. Me. Absolutely. Great conversation. And I just want to say that those students don't know what they're about to get hit with. You're in preseason form. You're, you're in mid-semester form already. <laughs> you don't need any more preseason no games, No more preseason. Yes. No, you're, 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 Fourth game coming up. I'm going to sit it ready. out. They're not ready. You do it like it's game seven. They're like, but what about mm -mm, game seven, y'all? Game seven, the White Walkers are coming. <laughs> Winter is here. Yes. Thank you. Hey, Kamal, what did you learn today? I learned that I have a hard time pronouncing the hard A sound. It's Kianga, Taylor, not Kianga. I learned that college campuses aren't actually the hotbeds of liberalism the right-wing media makes them out to be. Students are under a lot of pressure to rein in their speech. I learned that you need to have political spaces for people to talk about what's happening in this country, and that can't be curated by administrators or anyone. It should be free. Free speech. It's almost like I support free speech. I read on the internet that you were against free speech, even I, though your life is based on free speech. I read that I said that, and I don't think I said that. <laughs> I learned that Mustafa has a word called stakeholders, which I think is a fancy way of saying the people whose lives are affected by all these highfalutin policies. You need to talk to them. I learned that Hurricane Harvey highlights injustices that communities of color and low-income communities face on a daily basis. I actually learned that from Katrina, but this certainly reinforces that. I learned from Mustafa that if you follow A Just Harvey Recovery, that's A Just Harvey Recovery, you will see lots of lists of places to donate and people who need services and people who need money, and it's focused on the most impacted communities. So follow that hashtag, everybody. I also learned that the Environmental Justice Office at the EPA was created by community leaders. So it's it's not just some government office that actually you know was was developed from the ground up which you don't really see in the government. No, now we like to do things from the top and have them affect people who are just a little bit lower than the top. Get the two percenters to be one percenters. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks again to Mustafa Santiago Ali and Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Follow Mustafa at E-J-I-N Action on Twitter. That's E-J-I-N-A-C-T-I-O-N. 
Also, you should follow Dr. Kianga Yamada Taylor at Kianga Yamada. That's K-E-E-A-N-G-A-Y-A-M-A-H-T-T-A. It feels weird being an Indian dude spelling things. <laughs> As I was doing, I'm like, I am uncomfortable with spelling in front of everybody. Well, let me just tell you, uh, you got everything 100% right. <laughs> and thanks to all our listeners for calling in and sharing their stories and experiences. We really do appreciate you sharing with us. Keep sending us Twitter and Facebook messages. We absolutely love them. So keep those comments and questions coming using the hashtag politically reactive. We still have a limited supply of new t-shirts, so don't miss out. Visit podswag.com slash PR or podswag.com slash politically reactive. Guess what? I was in Earwolf in L.A., and I had a spontaneous meeting with the woman who runs the merchandise, and we had a long talk about getting the shirts in different cuts, bigger sizes, baby sizes. We even talked about some more merchandise. I didn't talk to Hari about it at all. I pitched some shirts. They said they liked them. We'll see what happens. And while you're at it, pick up a copy of my book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell. You can get a copy at your favorite local bookstore or at wkamaubell.com. Also, if you're in Toronto or the Toronto area, check me out at JFL 42, the Toronto Comedy Festival. I'll be there the week of that festival. I know I have a show on September 30th and a show some other day. Check me out. Also, you can get a copy of my album, Hurricane Ebola's New Material Night, Volume 1, or anything else I've made, ever. You can probably find it at hurrykundabolu.com. Also, you can see me live in Milwaukee, September 15th at the Underground Collaborative. We got shows at 7.30 and 9.30. Cleveland, Ohio on September 17th at Hilarities. And then I will also be at the JFL 42 Festival in Toronto, September 26th and 27th. Then London, England, the United Kingdom, the original colonizer. On uh, October 10th and 11th at the Soho Theater. I haven't been to the UK in a while, so that'll be fun. And then a bunch of other shows that you can find on my website, hurricanebolu.com, in Boston, in Oakland, in Santa Cruz, Eugene, Tacoma. So all that information available again at hurricanebolu.com. Politically Reactive is a production of Topic and distributed by Earwolf. Our executive producers are Lisa Langang and Lee Talmalad. The show is produced by Tim Barnes and Laura Flynn. The show is engineered by Dan Gallucci. We had a lot of recording help this week. Thanks to Paul Byers at WQED in Pittsburgh, Bob Alls at WHYY in Philadelphia, John Billingsley at Vermont Public Radio, and Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And thanks, as always, to Brontes Purnell for providing music for the show. Thanks for listening to Politically Reactive. Fuck Bill Maher. <laughs> and Tucker Carlson.